Welcome to Underlords Radio Hour. Well, hello there, and welcome back to Underlords Radio Hour, another socially distant episode of Underlords Radio Hour. I'm Josh on the phone. I got Brian. Howdy. Hi, Brian. Um, so we are going to pick up with, uh, chapter four of our novel origins of the damned. Um, chapter four takes place in spring of 1988 and the chapter is called Boneyard Studios. And this chapter represents, um, a deepening of the story and yet another rite of passage for all young bands which is the first visit to a proper studio to do some actual recording in that setting. So um, anything you want to uh, add to that? There are a couple of twists and turns, dramatic twists and turns in this chapter, but anything you want to add before we just uh, get into the reading? No, let's just get into it. Let's get into the reading. And you're going to do the reading, so I'm going to turn things over to you. Chapter 4, Spring, 1988. Boneyard Studios. Interference, Caesar Grubb repeated for what might have been the hundredth time as they listened to the playback of Orlis the Phantom. He began turning knobs and dials on the console. Need to find the track it's on. The underlords of the overworld had given up asking what interference was and exchanged uneasy glances. The moans and screeches that had afflicted their recording for the last week had an eerily human quality, but simultaneously not quite human. Brian took a seat next to Grubb and watched intently as the engineer tried to find the source of the problem. Can't you just bury it in the mix? Depends on the track, he replied flatly. The Kansas City Royals baseball cap that covered his bald head was turned backward, the edges stained with sweat. Penny Burns undraped herself from Justin and pulled her denim skirt down as she rose from the sofa they shared. Well, it wasn't the drums or vocals, that's for sure. Justin was perfect. It doesn't have to be anything to do with how anyone played. Brent said without looking up from his textbook. It's all acoustics or feedback, maybe. Maybe, Grubb muttered, working furiously. Some sort of interference. Why are you always studying? Penny asked, standing over Brent. What is that, anyway? Calculus. Looks boring. Nope. You like to party? Nope. Penny rolled her eyes. Wandering over to the leather chair where Josh quietly sat, she flopped onto his lap. What about you? Uh, what? Do you like to party? I I don't know. Justin sniffed. (laughs) Babe, leave the poor kid alone. He's got enough problems. Didn't we agree that groupies aren't allowed at recording sessions? There was no mistaking the edge in Brian's voice. I'm not a groupie, Penny hissed. I'm Justin's girlfriend, so if he says I stay, I stay. When Justin said nothing, Brian waved her off like a nettlesome fly and turned back to the mixing console. Found it, Grubb said, interrupting the newly settled tension. Track 11, the bass. 
To emphasize his point, he turned down all of the other tracks, allowing only the bass line of Orlis the Phantom to ring out and the awful moans that now accompanied it. No way I can fix that. Gonna have to re-record it. Everyone stared at Josh, who had gone unmistakably pale. I... I'm not going back down there, he whispered. From the start, Caesar Grubb had been an enigma, sharing little about his approach to recording and even less about himself. Boneyard Studios was a spacious old mansion in Ames, Iowa, that Grubb's forebearers had operated as a mortuary and funeral home for nearly 75 years before he broke his parents' hearts and converted it into a 24-track studio instead of carrying on the family business. Linus Velour had booked two consecutive weekends in April with a clear directive. Record a three-song demo that could serve as an entry for the upcoming Erebus Cabal. Typically, this type of job was right up Grubb's alley. After 20 years in the business, his equipment was out of date and substandard, but Caesar Grubb specialized in working magic with bands limited to a shoestring budget. And while the first two tracks, Downtown Evil and Lottery of Your Life, were laid down with almost no trouble, Orlis the Phantom had been a nightmare to record from the outset. Guitars detuned in the middle of sessions along with that mysterious interference that often sounded like a choir of human anguish rising and falling in the song's background. But the problems were more than technical. Since they started work on Orlis the Phantom, all four bandmates had experienced the onset of sudden chills, nervous sweats, and an eerie presence when recording in the studio's sub-basement, not quite affectionately referred to as the catacomb. They'd laughed it off at first, making jokes about the multitude of cadavers that had been stored in the room during most of the house's history. But as the session continued, their unease mounted to the point of dread at the prospect of returning to the catacomb. A little company couldn't hurt, right? Josh asked weakly. Don't even think about it, Penny warbled while positioning her body squarely on top of Justin. (laughs) Wouldn't dream of it, babe. I'm not going anywhere. Don't look at me, Brent said without raising his head from the textbook. Calculus midterm tomorrow. Brian shook his head. Uh, I, I can probably be more help up here at the control panel. Right, Josh said, stalking towards the service elevator. Thanks for nothing. The catacomb was a simple, rectangular room deep beneath the house. The secret to its flawless acoustics was the generous carpeting Caesar Grubb had installed on the floor and ceiling, as well as the three shadowy alcoves that lined each of the long walls, once used to store cadavers for preparation before their funeral services. The room's lighting was poor at best, with only two small floor lamps in the far corners. Stepping off the rickety service elevator, Josh carefully made his way among the clutter of cords, drums, and amplifiers, and picked up his fender bass as the earthy odor of formaldehyde swept over him. Fucking cold, Josh muttered, rubbing his hands together. He put on his headphones, plugged into his amp, and played a few bass scales to limber up his fingers. He waited as long seconds dragged by. Finally, the headphones crackled and Grubb's voice cut through the silence. We're queued up here. You ready down there? Let's get this over with, the bass player replied, ashamed at how much his voice wavered. Brian's voice cut through. 
You've played this a hundred times. Just relax and be cool. Right. Cool. No sweat. Smells like a fucking dead body down here, he murmured. He cranked the volume knob on the bass guitar and set about recording his parts. Brent closed his textbook, leaned back, and tried in vain to relax. Across the room at the mixing console, Brian and Caesar talked to Josh through the intercom, trying to get the bass player calmed down so he could record his final track. Pussy, Brent thought. Josh had always been a little weak-minded. He was probably letting his imagination get the best of him down in the catacomb by himself. But that was nothing in comparison to what was taking place on the couch catty corner from where he sat. The moist smacking sounds of Justin and Penny's interlocking mouths threatened to drown out Josh's new bass lines pulsing from the speakers. Catching a glimpse of the generously dimpled flesh on the backs of her legs as the short denim skirt she wore rode upwards with each thrust of Penny's body, Brent winced and grabbed a newspaper off the coffee table to shield himself from the view. As he flipped through the paper, Brent made a point of loudly rattling the pages. Dude, Justin finally said, what gives? Excuse me? Brent asked, peering over the newspaper. Enough with the racket. Trying to get some quality time with my lady here. Hadn't noticed, Brent grumbled. The couple resumed their kissing and writhing against each other with occasional grunts and moans. As they grew more excited, Brent considered stepping out for some fresh air, but a story in the Metro News section caught his attention. Hey, hey, Justin, hey! Rolling off the drummer, Penny's eyes were slits of fury as she stormed out of the room, slamming the door behind her. Asshole! I'm out of here. Babe, wait, Justin called as he sat up and fixed a confused and indignant stare upon Brent. What's the matter with you? Man, I ought to unleash some serious jujitsu on you. Brent shook his head and handed the paper to Justin. Look at this guy in the picture. Recognize him? Snatching the paper, Justin continued to glare at Brent for several seconds before turning his attention to the photograph in question. Beats me. This is what you interrupted for? You are a dead man. This is the guy Linus Velour was talking to at the runway a couple of months ago, the first time we played there. I totally remember that mustache. They were talking at the bar while we were setting up. How the hell would you even remember that? Justin asked defiantly. Photographic memory, Brent replied, tapping his forehead. It's part of having such a high IQ. Justin remained skeptical. Anyway, so what? Linus knows tons of people. He's a very successful businessman. Check out the story. This guy, Denny Bonanno, is dead. Murdered. Pausing to skim through the newsprint, Justin shrugged and tossed the paper back onto the coffee table. Big deal. Says he was a private investigator. That's a shady line of work. Lots of those guys wind up dead. Trust me, I know this stuff. I work in law enforcement. Brent burst out laughing. You're a security guard at the mall. So, it's still dangerous. I have to use my martial arts skills at least twice a week. And what are you saying? You think Linus had something to do with Bonanno's murder? All I'm saying, Brent said sternly, is that it's an odd coincidence that Linus was talking to this guy. The police said that he was working on some sort of case that might have involved a devil worship cult. 
and then he ends up getting disemboweled with a butcher knife and tossed into the river. How often does that happen in Des Moines? You might be surprised, Justin replied evenly. Oh, come on. Before the argument could escalate any further, Brian was standing over them. We might need to go down and help Josh. He's having some sort of freak out. Okay. Good job. Excellent reading. And uh, lots to unpack in this first part of chapter four. Um, where do you want to start, Brian? I think we should start with um, just this kind of uh, first recording experiences for, for bands. You know, uh, nowadays it's so easy to, to get yourself a little uh, home recording studio and, and to you know, record stuff. But, but back then, uh, I mean, you could get like a Tascam 4 yeah. track recorder and stuff, but um, actually being in a studio, a real studio for the first time, um, kind of a rite of passage, as you mentioned in our little introduction. So yeah. um, my first experience in a recording studio was just observing my dad's gospel group at a studio, which I believe was in Indianola, Iowa, south of Des Moines. Um, but of course I was very little and I don't really remember the experience very vividly, just have kind of flash images of it. Um, my first uh, recording experience as a guitar player was, uh, with you. And I think you had experience before I did. So, uh, why don't you speak to that? Yeah. So I actually, after Hackenslay, uh, broke up, I was recruited by the former drummer of Hackenslay. Uh, to uh, join a country western band um, that played at a country bar, and which is a really weird thing to to look back on for do you, me. <laughs> do you remember the name of that band? We never really had a name. That was the weird thing. We were just the house band at some place called Stuart Anderson's Cattle Company, which is down in Des Moines, and what or was not anymore. <laughs> but so. Uh, the guitar player had a couple of original songs that he had written. And so we went into Junior's Motel. We went as the studio is called Junior's Motel up in Otho, Iowa to record these songs. So we took a day, started early in the morning and ended up recording late into the evening uh, these two songs. And it was a really interesting experience. Um, and we can talk a little bit about Junior's Motel because that's where we went to um, later with a different band, you and me. Um, but it's it's definitely an interesting experience recording, and again, very very different. You know, as a young musician, you learn to play your instrument, you learn to play with other musicians, you learn to play on stage, and then you learn to play in a studio, which is totally different. In a lot of ways, I think much more challenging because everything has to be so right on the the nuggets as far as how you do it, um, and it has to be done really well. And it's, it's challenging. Yeah. So, you know, I definitely have those recollections. So, so yeah, the first, uh, that was, yeah, Junior's Motel was my first um, recording studio experience, uh, other than, you know, just basement recordings. Um, but uh, Junior's Motel itself has an interesting story behind it. It's yeah. In Otho, Iowa, which is a town in the, in the middle of the state, the town only has a population of a couple hundred. Yep. Um, it's on a farm. It's actually an old converted chicken coop, yep. which sounds ridiculous. But when you walk into the thing, it's 
it's a full blown 24 track analog uh, recording studio with uh, um, two inch tape machine, and yep. you know it, it it's cool. It's a beautiful studio, um, and and run by a, a really good guy, a really cool guy um, who who also has a bit of a history that I'll let you kind of talk about. Sure, yeah, his name's Kirk Kaufman. And uh, he had been in a band in the early 80s called The Hawks, which had a minor hit. I don't remember the song off the top of my head, but their album had been produced by Tom Warman. Uh, I think they were on Columbia Records. Yeah. could double check that, too. Should have done my homework. Sorry. No, I think you're right but on that. But at any rate, they, um, uh, they had a record deal, and the record company gave them an option for uh, an advance for a second album or they could get tour support. And I think it was Van Halen that they had an opportunity to go out and and open for, but they made a dumb decision. And instead of going out on tour, they opted for an advance for a second album. Um, And the second album bombed the record label, dropped them. And that was it. And back to the family farm in Iowa, Kirk goes and eventually turns the, the, the farm into a studio. At least that's my recollection of the story. I think you're right. Uh, fame is a fickle fate, and um... it's kind of it's <laughs> kind of cool though to you know when you're up there and you can talk to him about those old stories because uh, Tom Worman produced the the Hawks album and he produced you know Motley Crue, Twisted Sister, um, one of my favorite BOC albums, Mirrors, yep. which was that 1977. So, I, I believe so. Seventy-eight. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, an interesting guy. Was he by chance a model in any way for the character of Caesar Grubb? Uh, a little bit, you know. I, I think that it, as we kind of pivot back to the story here, um, you know, Junior's Motel was kind of that. Um, I, I think kind of starting ground for creating that studio that that is in the story. Now we obviously changed it a little bit. Um, we called it Boneyard Studios, and it was, I believe, Boneyard Studios is, is in an old mortuary, which is way more interesting uh, from a supernatural perspective, um, you know, for our story. But, yeah, I, I think it was kind of that archetype of of uh, the character and, and the setting as well. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, it. it there's a little bit more potential with a uh, an old uh, funeral home or mortuary or whatever being turned into a studio as opposed to a chicken coop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> more interesting yeah. things could happen. So, you know, I think that was yeah. the intent. Um, so, again, in the first half of this chapter, there, like you said, there are a lot. There's a lot of things going on. Um, there's a scene. Uh, well, I, I think it's important to note josh is focused on recording his bass parts yep and justin and brent are just kind of whiling away the time brent's reading the newspaper doing some homework um justin doing something else yeah this this kind of introduces this was kind of a fun scene to write because it introduces kind of uh the the dynamic the potentially disruptive dynamic of girlfriends you know, boyfriends of, of band members um, and how that can have a disruptive impact on a young band. And I remember that very clearly, um, you know, going back to the Hackenslade days. In fact, 
this scene was funny to write because it's based on actual experiences with uh the the first drummer i worked with with his when he got a girlfriend and she instantly became embedded within the framework of the band and um there were a lot of there was a lot of public displays of affection very close proximity to the rest of us and so you know and that's kind of what's taking place in this chapter so a little awkward you know a little awkward and and you know there's always that question of you know does does the girlfriend belong there is she with the band is she not with the band and there's kind of a a funny scene where i, I think that brian refers to her as a groupie and she's like i'm not a groupie i'm you know justin's girlfriend and you know of course that's a, a definite distinction you know when you're looking at, at bands and how that works yeah um from a personal standpoint i can say that i i don't think i ever personally witnessed anything like that playing in bands but um as a as just being slightly younger than you and watching hack and slay in those early days um it did seem like there were a couple girls here and there hanging around yeah there there you guys that we did we did have that experience and, and you know what and it was it was a disruptive force part of the disruptive force that ended up disassembling that band but <laughs> you know yeah you live and learn um now in that in that same scene uh brent is he's reading the newspaper and he he, he points out to justin the fate of Danny Bonanno, who we just met in the previous chapter. Yes, this chapter gets to, we learn of the uh, untimely demise, the murder of Danny Bonanno. So yeah, that's a bit of a dramatic turn in the story. Um, and, and again, it shows some of the danger that is starting to accompany uh, perhaps this Faustian pact that has been made. Well, I don't think it's uh, very common to introduce a, a character that has so much potential like, uh, you know, Danny Bonanno, private investigator, yada, yada. And then, I mean, in a matter of pages, he's gone. He's disemboweled. Yeah, I think he's disemboweled. I think that we we gave him a pretty gruesome uh, send off. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, not just murdered, but gruesomely murdered. And um, And I think at least to my reading of this. It's really kind of um, interesting that Brent seems to be kind of taken aback by this turn of events, and Justin is just kind of like, "Oh well, this happens all the time," you know, and he just he just brushes it off. Yeah, we're starting to get the impression that uh, perhaps there is a differentiation between members of the Underlords of the Overworld. Uh, in how they're seeing things unfold. And again, Brent is shocked, um, and he starts to recognize this connection with Danny Bonanno um, through Linus Velour, I believe, and, and um, you know, is taken aback by it, whereas Justin's like, you know, ah, oh, that happens all the time. You'd be surprised, and, you know, no big deal. So, again, starting to set up a little bit of a, of a differential or dynamic within the band, um, that is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, going to lead to further developments. Yeah. Speaking of further developments, 
um, I, I mentioned to just move on to chapter four, part two. Yeah, so I think this was a good discussion. I think we, we let's let's go ahead and bring this one to a close. And uh, again, we'll uh, we'll pick this up again with part two of chapter four in our next episode. But uh, in the meantime, as always, thank you for listening. And uh, we will uh, hope to see you again soon. Thank you.